Welcome to Brand New Doctor. I'm Rola Kerajo, doctor turned brand strategist and graphic designer for the health and wellness industry. This is the podcast where we share important ideas and conversations with healthcare professionals and industry experts to inspire you with new and exciting ways to make an impact in work, life, and healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. This is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm super excited to introduce my guest, Mary Oladele. So Mary, you are the founder and CEO of Cancer Education UK, a charity dedicated to providing cancer education and support to the Black, Asian, minority ethnic and refugee communities, or BEMA for short, and also to people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So the mission is destigmatizing cancer in these communities so people can get the information and care that they need. You started cancer education in 2016 while you were working as a therapeutic radiographer. And it was here that you realized that many people from the Bamer community were presenting late because of this stigma. And you're making a huge impact in this community. To date, cancer education has been able to support over 3,000 people with cancer. So thank you so much for your time for coming on the podcast we'll dive right into the questions then you've come from this philanthropic family so setting up a charity was as you put it a natural step for you mm. so what was it like for you growing up in that kind of environment and how did it make you different from other people i have very very happy memories of my childhood i think when i started noticing from a young age at first you don't really notice things but when i started noticing when i started becoming aware said realizing my grandparents my parents were a bit more given than other than others the normal at first it was a bit frustrating as oh why do we have to help this why do we have to help this person but i think what really was amazing was that my parents really instilled that act of giving of helping people within in in me as a child and so afterwards i was soon able to switch to be like okay actually it's good to help others as well um I don't really think it makes me different. I think everyone has goals and values that they live their life by. And one for me is definitely helping people. Those are just values that I've grown up with and it's just become instilled in me in giving and helping others. What's normal to you is maybe not so normal to other people. And, and I think a lot of people dream of, of starting a charity, but not many people actually do that. I'm really curious for you, what were those kinds of experiences that you had that helped you to empathize so deeply with the patients that you were seeing that were coming to you yeah so I think for for me I necessarily didn't start off as a charity it was just something that like you rightly said at the beginning I was in placement going to going to Guys and Thomas at the time and I saw a lot of just disparities, health inequalities and I thought why don't I try and do something to help. Growing up in Peckham, South East London and all of that, I thought hey, why don't I set up aunties together. Come from a Nigerian background whilst they're talking in the kitchen about rice, about pepe, about this, about what head tie, what this, why don't I gather them together and talk about do this, do you know, what do you know about cancer? 
And it kind of started off like that. Then it was, we slowly started getting invitations to like churches and mosques and all of that. And then we, I, I, I soon realized that, okay, this is actually bigger than myself, that I need to make this um, bigger. But I think so far, what's really, what's made me empathize more, like you asked, is the stories that people's stories which which is ultimately their life as well people who never have interacted with healthcare system people who are just who do not trust in the nhs who would rather go away travel away to have things done or who would rather bury things under a carpet or on, under the ground just so they don't have to deal with it but when you hear that they've actually gone for treatment they've had the screening they've had treatment they're better, they're doing well, they're able to walk their children down the aisle, they're able to play with their grandkids. Things like this, you can't you can't quantify it and it makes it really, really worth it. And I thought, you know what, this is this is amazing. And just that small impact in one person's life was like, okay, there's so many other people who are like this, especially with the Nigerian community, the Asian community as well, and people from low socioeconomic background as well, who are like this, so that we can really change and we can really help. So yeah, those are the stories that really moved me in saying that I have seen this issue, I want to do more and I want to do better. That's super inspiring. I also, I call South East London home for me. I've I've lived at various points when we first came to the UK. Mm-hmm. We lived in Peckham, Camberwell, I'm there right now, actually, at this very moment. And and it's so true that there is this community of aunties. It's funny. (laughs) It's the aunties. It's almost like it's like a title. It's a staple, isn't it? They are integral to this this community. I can see the the kind of the the emotional, the relationship that you have with them Mm -hmm. is is, a very strong one. and, And I, I, I can see why that would have such a huge impact on you when you see the changes that it makes in people's lives to to get this kind of education. It really can make their lives so much better. But once you get there, they 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 really do open up. And I always yeah. <laughs> okay professionals this that once they open up, you hear it's like the just a huge floodgate. I wanna ask you a bit more about the systems that are in place at the moment in healthcare that are helping these people. I'm really interested in how we can design healthcare in a way that will improve the experience for patients. You are taking steps to educate people and you are raising awareness of cancer by doing this. Mm -hmm. But what do you think are the key things that need to change in the healthcare service to be able to encourage people from the BEMA community to, to engage in treatment sooner when it comes to cancer treatment specifically so i think there's so many things there's so many things and i'll try to summarize them i think for one the healthcare system as it's it's had a one fits all approach which really does not work and when i say that it's because you can't have a system which expects that women for example let's say screening would be able to receive that letter they'll book the appointment and they'll go and see their gp what about the woman who's working two, three jobs, just trying to put food on the table? How is she then able to squeeze in this appointment? When we send out these letters, what about people's reading age? Can they read? Can they articulate? When healthcare professionals are speaking to patients, are they breaking it down in a way that it's a bite-sized? The healthcare system has always expected patients to come to it. It's now a thing whereby 
we actually need to take healthcare to people and meet them at where they are, especially at grassroots level. There are very few charities that are actually go into the grassroots and I'm looking at people, the aunties that work in the hair shop or who are worried about the immigration papers because they also fall into the cracks that this system does not accommodate for. The healthcare system doesn't account for that social element that really affects people when they decide to either go for treatment and I always say one of the most heartbreaking stories that I had when I wanted to start cancer education was a woman who really believed that God had failed her because she was about to retire start to enjoy her life and she had cancer and for her she didn't choose certain treatments because she was like I I don't I, I won't be able to go to church if I have chemo because she was thinking, what then happens? Like, if she doesn't go to church, people would know that she's she she hasn't attended. And then they would come to her house. They would see her, that her hair is falling out. They would see her, that she doesn't look herself. So all these little things that seem like they don't matter. We've, we've done a campaign about prosthetics, ensuring that there are prosthetics that are readily available in different skin tones. That plays a huge impact as well. Even hair care, just so many simple things that I think it doesn't, it doesn't cater to everyone. So I'd say removing that one-fits-all approach and meeting people at where they are because that's when the real change starts to starts to take place. It's clear that from your perspective, there are so, so many different aspects to this mm. that we need to kind of tackle this from all sides. And something that struck me or something I was thinking about is just the way that the, the the approach to the healthcare system is very different for Nigerian people, black people, especially if you're an immigrant, mm. that there's a bowing to authority a lot of the time, especially in Nigeria. We love respect. Respect is like everything, right? Mm. So, so there's just this utmost respect for healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a gratefulness, but it's almost like a feeling that it's not for us or something or like we're just getting like a slice of it in some kind of way and I think there's there's much less entitlement I think is what I'm is what I'm trying to say and and I think that a healthy amount of entitlement would actually help yeah yeah it would it would do us a lot of good to be honest and I really agree with that as well and I think even as Nigerians or And this is the same across Asian communities as well. We tend to see doctors as almost small demigods, like, oh my God, whatever they say is true. But I think that, especially back home, a pharmacist is well-respected, a doctor is well-respected. That's why parents advocate for their kids to become all of this. But also, I think coming to a country whereby you don't know a lot of people, you've packed your whole life in a suitcase, you've been here for years and years, I think as well, and within our community, of course, and the bad news tends to spread quicker through the aunties WhatsApp chains, through all of this as well. And yeah, the Nigerian it, WhatsApp network is what I call oh, it. Oh, it's a very <laughs> strong network. And I'm still not even that. But one of the one one of the things is that once one bad experience has happened, then it's like, oh, if you go to your doctor, this is what might happen, and then they tend to it pushes that community a bit backward and they're like, oh, I don't want to go to my doctor because of this as well. Or they feel like, oh, maybe my doctor is probably going to say the same as well. And those things also have an effect on how they see their doctors and then people tend to shy away and not want to 
see or listen to their doctors and there's also been horrible experiences that patients have had that's left a bitter taste patients of oxford referrals of oxford tests and they've, they've not been met with the necessary tests that they need and then maybe they find out something is quite life-threatening it puts a bad taste in their mouth automatically that doesn't let them see doctors in that light where they originally had them so yeah I'm interested in what clinicians can do other than obviously not making these kind of major clinical errors essentially. Mm. What do you think what do you think clinicians can do to help to reduce the stigma or to help people to get into treatment sooner? I think it's more about seeing that person as a whole. When a patient has been told they have cancer, especially from ethnic minority community, the first person they're thinking about it's not themselves. They're most likely thinking about their family. They're thinking about either their church or their mosque group before they then think about, okay, where do they fit in into all of this? How is your community going to accept you? Do you have that support there? Sometimes we don't we don't tend to ask these questions. Some patients go through treatment all by themselves and it's it's a scary word. Once they hear the word cancer, they have endless appointments. We hear endlessly, we hear all the time. Patients are always saying that they, they went through it all alone. Whereas if you see other communities, someone is bringing them to the appointment, someone is dropping them, someone is picking up their kids, someone's bringing them food. The thing is that there could be something so small you could say to a patient that, like we rightly said earlier, that would cause them to open up and they would have floods of tears and you realise the amount of weight that they've been they've been carrying. Sometimes patients have told me they've been diagnosed and they haven't been told, this is, if you need any support, this is the number to call. If you need any anyone to talk to, this is the number to, this is the person to talk to, this is the person you can call. Because some patients their loved ones find out that they had cancer when they passed away. So I think treating each person as as human, even though it sounds so crazy, there's their mind, their body, their soul, but also their environment, their religious beliefs that we have to that we also have to think about as well. I say this of healthcare as well. We just we need to make it more human. Mm-hmm. Something that I find really interesting about what you're saying is that in these communities, which are typically, I would say, very, they're very gregarious. It's like everyone is together a lot of the time. And when it comes to cancer, that's really isolating. So it's like the reverse is happening. And in white communities, people band together when people have cancer. But the opposite is happening in these in the Bama communities. That's a really interesting perspective there. I think it's because of also pride and that shame, that stigma. It's a word you could be, and it's it's so powerful because you could be in the midst of people, but you could also feel very alone because of the fact that they don't know the deepest thing that you're dealing with. You know, Mm -hmm. have statistics that talk about even black men, not even... Even as a black community, us wanting to talk about mental health, well, wow, it's 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 been it's a not slow a approach for us to get to. Yeah. When I was starting to talk to even African parents, when you say, "Oh, you're depressed," they're like, "What's that? Oh, yeah. what's the pressure?" Like they can't understand. They can't seem to comprehend it. Like it's it's actually a thing. So yeah, I, I very much hear that. So you are now working as an, a diversity and inequality lead, is that right? 
similar to that similar to yeah. that so i do basically patient engagement and inequalities lead okay. which is still around the whole diversity and inclusion as well mm-hmm. uh, yeah you obviously have a very nuanced view on on this problem in with cancer and how it appears in the in the BAMA communities mm-hmm. but what has your role as the as the engagement and inequality lead taught you in addition or how's that fed into your work with cancer education I simply tell people that I kind of do what I do within the charity in a different aspect for the NHS in a way but I think even more so it's opened up my eyes to see why these inequalities exist. Something that's quite crazy at the moment is that we're finding that a lot of patients are actually traveling abroad to have treatment either when they've been diagnosed or when they notice any symptoms that they can't get treated as soon as possible. They've actually had to travel abroad abroad and even though they don't have the finances for it, they'll put themselves in debt and that shouldn't happen because they're already trying to pay so much for it so so why are they having to go abroad for treatment is it that they're not eligible for nhs cares or no so it's not that it's just because there isn't that trust within the nhs system. oh okay oh, that's really? that's even worse that's yeah. way worse so uh, some people some especially a lot of men have been diagnosed with treatment and especially prostate cancer and they don't take up treatment at all and um, you rather just are frustrated is it that i'm not explaining it well or why are they going why are they going away and sometimes again to defend the clinicians as well some patients just decide to do that no matter how much you believe in them but then that also brings it back to that patient-centered care it's a case whereby you have to sit with that patient discuss it see how you can kind of meet in the middle with that patient but yeah there are patients who have literally put themselves in debt i think germany is the hottest place that a lot of patients are going and because also they're more advanced in some cancer treatment options that they're able to offer as well just things are just done differently so for some patients i I guess they're also like it's going to take forever so they want to do it as soon as possible but i think a lot of it is rooted in the lack of trust is one thing that we've seen and also there's been a lot of misdiagnosis as well so that thread of lack of trust is really really it's 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 feeding into so many issues yeah and it's worrying yeah that i mean that is really concerning i guess it's um you know thought that it was there was kind of a distrust of western medicine but in fact it's more of a specific distrust of the experiences they've had with the nhs that we're talking yes. about here i think it has a slight mix to there are some um, people who believe so much in conventional alternatives that that do feel like, yeah, I don't believe in Western medicine. But I always tell patients as well, I think there's always a healthy balance if you want to take your natural supplements. So there are some people who don't believe in Western medicine, but there are some, a, a larger amount of people whereby it's just because of experiences that they've even heard. I'd love to know just a little bit more about starting a charity because I think there are a lot of doctors and dentists healthcare professionals obviously who get into into healthcare because they care about people like you say mm-hmm. and they a lot of people want to know how to do these things as well because it's maybe something that they've always had on their mind to do I know you started off with the grassroots talking directly with the aunties and maybe being introduced or asked to go to churches and such but what things did you have to learn or what skills did you have to develop to get to where you are now? 
Yeah. So I think the main thing is the mission and the aim as to which you want to do it. So when people ask me, how do I start a charity? I, I always ask you, why do you want to start a charity? Yeah. What is the aim? What are you trying to achieve? I mean, I started this when I was really in my early 20s. And it, it is a lot of hard work. It is a lot of late nights, lack of a social life. But your purpose really fuels you at those points as well. But looking at skills management, I manage a whole bunch of trustees and volunteers as well. You have to have people who actually believe in what you're trying to establish and those are your trustees. I think, in all honesty, if if someone was to ask me, I think a business might be a bit more easier to run than a charity just because of the fact that you're dealing with people, you're dealing with so many regulations, you're dealing with so many things that could, could go wrong as well. And at least with a business aim that you're trying to achieve, you can say that I want to sell this much thing, but with with a charity it's almost that you have to believe in that vision and then you have to be able to convince other people to believe in that vision as well when i started many people are like what's the point <laughs> people are not going to listen to you they're like and say like cancer god forbid like that kind of reaction already so yeah and I was like, I'm in my early 20s. I don't I don't need to do this. Another reason why I'd say running a charity is a bit harder than running a business is because there isn't actually a lot of funding, especially for a black charity like us. Black charities are less likely to receive more funding than their other counterparts. And that's not word for word. So there are several quotes that, that talk about this or those that are women-led or, or the statistics against how charities are actually funded is crazy. So... For a long time within the charity, I had to self-fund it. I had to take money out of my own pockets and say, okay, I want to do this. And I believe in this so much. And I think people don't realize that. And it's like you're taking out of your money and putting it into something else. But with a business, you can see like, okay, if someone buys products, you can use that money to then reinvest back into it. But no one taught me how to write a grant. And I honestly, Rebecca, I don't think I have it figured out. We've been doing this for so long. I don't think I have it figured out at all. I still still don't know how to really write a grant. And I think people ask me, oh, but you can say this so well. I think it's just the passion and the impact that I've seen that really helps me convey what I'm trying to say. But in writing grants and writing all of this, I might not be the most articulate person. And that's something for so people like Gabby who who's come on board and so many people who come and really take that vision and, and 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 go with it. But the funding isn't really there because we have so many people that we want to help and we're literally having to almost push them away because we don't have the resources in place that we really need to do this yeah i just think there's just so many skills that you just pick up nobody taught me and i just had to keep reading i just had to keep teaching i don't have a mentor i didn't have a mentor in this which is quite sad even when you reach out to others as well for mentorship as well people almost see you as a competition because ultimately that's your charity against their charity there's so many there's so many things to unpack about what you just said i guess i first want to ask with leadership leadership being such a big part of what you do now mm -hmm. What do you think you've learned about yourself through this process of taking on a team and really directing this charity? Oh, I think I have learned the good and the bad side. So in terms of one, I know I'm very passionate. I'm very, very passionate. For a long time, especially with this work, we have 
we have volunteers who come and go and there's some volunteers they come they make a whole world of difference they do the most amazing work and this is where it's hard especially when you don't have funding because of course people have to leave with their life and they leave and that is the most heartbreaking thing and for me i think for a long time i took it almost personal like you're leaving me they're not necessarily leaving me it's just because maybe they're studying and they have they can't commit to it anymore but there were people who also i think they come in and they just don't do anything and you just say what is the purpose of you being here so you also learn how to manage those as well how to be quite strict in and, and and how to be quite cutthroat in a way but i think i've learned about just how to manage people as a whole how to manage the expectations when they see the management side of things that we have this idea but there isn't actually the funds to do it or the fund has been actually given to someone to to feed or to get to chemo or to do this but also i think i've learned about things that i could improve before i didn't used to delegate because i did it a, a long time by myself until i think someone put me and was like you have to learn to delegate a bit more like let others come in and help i, I think i've improved a bit but yeah there's so many good and, and like bad side but i'm constantly on ever learning because i'm just human at the end of the day i don't want to ever or anyone who's ever volunteered for the charity and be like oh my gosh that mary i don't <laughs> i don't want to be that at all and people who've left we are always in good communication it's always great so yeah it's the hardest thing to do i think managing people so i see that is really hard and especially as you're describing with such adverse conditions for a charity to to exist in mm. where it's like you're competing with other charities. I mean, I'd never really thought about that, but ultimately there is competition. And it's such a sad thing to think that outside of the private sector, when we're used to competition in the private sector, but when it comes to charities, there's still this competition going on. Oh, and it's even worse. It's even worse and nastier. And, nastier. Mm. and I just, I, I refuse to, I refuse to partake in it. There's always one charity in a beef beef between charities <laughs> i'm just i'm imagining like twitter beef between these like unicef and the red cross you're really opening my eyes well talking about the the volunteers i noticed on your website actually that you have a lot of creative volunteers people working in branding and design and such and i'm a designer myself yeah. i'm just curious what what have they been able to bring what have their skills and creativity been able to bring to the charity Wow, that is a good question. Creatives are interesting people to work with. Shout out to Tom. Tom, Tom, Tom. He's left now, but I will always have such a huge respect for Tom and I would always he came in, he saw the he saw the charity when this was during COVID and he came in and he changed he changed the outlook or our social media presence and just the amount of things that I think he just had the idea about, even down to our website, he was very creative. But then the, the what also happens is that when you have several creatives, there I think there's a clash of creativity. Too many cooks. <laughs> but what was so good, just to wrap up, is that Tom really came in and he did really amazing work and he understood the vision and he understood what we would always talk about before we used to be loud and pink and now we're more refined we're a bit more defined in in how we are of course there's always room for improvements but I think 
it's it, it's always great working with working with creatives as well and just trying to curb their creativity it's it's not something i try to do i i always tell them go go with the idea within reason but just like i i allow them to explore their creativity within reason just bring the idea to me let me see how this can fit and if this fits in with our brand and everything we're trying to do and then if that's what they want to do. I, I let them go with it. I never want to shield anyone's creativity because I know they're so inspired from different things as well. A lot of businesses start out, businesses or charities indeed in your case, start out with a certain way that they look. But it's it's as you're finding yourself and the business is also finding itself visually, it becomes cohesive. And mm-hmm. when you're clearer on who you are, then you can communicate that well to other people so that they can get on board as well. Design has a huge impact on the way that people receive you and receive the information that you have to give. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, shout out to Tom, because I think cancer education has a very clear kind of brand. Mm-hmm. As a designer, I look at it and it's like, okay, yeah, this this is well communicated. I truly think that what you do in this world depends on what you believe about yourself. Mm-hmm. What did you believe about yourself before you went into starting cancer education and what belief did you have to develop in yourself to do what you've been able to do wow i knew from until i think like we mentioned at the very start i knew i wanted to help people i definitely knew that i didn't know what capacity but i think when once i figured out the the how or the why was was already ingrained in me then this kind of like fitted in in a way it just came at the right time what does that mean there's several times i wake up being very honest and i'm like i don't want to do this i i I really don't want to do the charity anymore i think there's that always fear of can i really do it can i why am i doing this in the early age in the early stage when no one really knew cancer education when you compare to other charities as well i thought can I really do this? And as a leader, you would always have that fear. It's interesting because when you see the vision and nobody else can see it, it almost makes, it makes you seem mad in a way because it's like you're trying to tell everyone, this is what the vision is. This is what I see myself. I'll be very honest. And my one goal is to impact, impact cancer care as a whole and how we see it in the UK, in Nigeria, globally, just in different parts of the world as well. I think that's how I see my my life going. So that's my vision. But how I'm going to get there all throughout my life, that I don't really have figured out. <laughs> Maybe it's through the charity. Maybe God will bring something else my way. I don't ultimately know. But I'm learning and picking different things along the journey to say, okay, this fits into the goal. Sometimes when I'm scared, I accept the fear and I'm like, okay, I move on from that. Build myself up again. And sometimes I take the wrong turn. I take the wrong turn, hit a no entry. And I have to turn around sometimes and say, okay, let's go back and do it this way. So I don't have everything figured out. And I think I'm still figuring it out as I go along. But I know what I want to kind of aspire to in the long run. It's about vision, isn't it, really? Is that when, when you have a vision, a big vision like yours it can be answered in so many different ways. Mm, mm, Yeah. 
What projects are you doing to kind of reduce that stigma at the moment? I know that you have these groups where people can ask questions and such. Yeah, so I don't know if we actually go into the community. So we hire like let's say a library or so and then get people to come together and teach people about how to check their breasts, how to signs and symptoms about cancer, really speak to people about answer their questions. We hear really weird questions about if I wear a bra to sleep, does that cause cancer? If I use Maggie, does that cause cancer? Oh, wow. It really, really You'd be surprised. You have to hide that shock behind the question. Like People have these questions and it's within them that they don't feel they can ask someone else. No question is really, really, really stupid because that could be something that's keeping them awake at night. Also, I think more people sharing their stories as well is something that we want to, we want to look at this year as well. Really creating that safe space for people to ask any of the questions that they want to ask. That is very, very powerful question that I ask everyone who comes onto the show and I'd love to get your answer as well just imagine for a moment that you are the dean of your university and you have the power to influence the curriculum in any way that you see fit what would you want students to be learning to make a change in this world to make a more inclusive world for example for question the most important thing is that I would tell them people are not just numbers that's someone's mom, that's someone's dad. You have to look at that person behind that number that you see. We've been talking a lot about patient-centric care or patient-centered care, realizing people are humans. Ultimately, when you're trying to diagnose someone, you're trying to almost try and put all those little puzzles together to try and reach some kind of diagnosis. But when they're able to open up to you actually realize that you could get to that diagnosis quicker. If you understand your population better, you would be a better clinician, a better healthcare professional to them, and you'd be able to deliver the best level of care. And if you can deliver the best level of care, then that patient can make healthier decisions to improve their lifestyle. If they are making healthier lifestyle choices, then people would live longer. So in a way, (laughs) to sum it up, I would just say, Focus on that person. Focus on that person. Just that humans count. It's it's a lot of pressure within the role, especially what we do clinically. But remember the human first before anything else. What are you looking forward to this year for cancer education? And how can we support cancer education in that? Oh, you can support us by following us on Instagram, which is cancer underscore eduk, and on Twitter as well and just cancer education uk on linkedin and i think facebook is just cancer education and our website www.cancereducationuk.org a lot of the works that we do a lot of the events that we do outreach that we do come along if you'd love to volunteer we'd love to have you especially if you bring a certain skill set we need more people more than ever to just keep shining the light and keep spreading the word as well what i am looking forward to 2023 i would say being able to help more people definitely we still have more things to do more campaigns we want to run as well and they're just different projects that we're working on to see how can we target more people how can we get more people talking about cancer openly just because of the fact that even within the black community we don't really talk about cancer as we talk about rice it's not something we (laughs) 
Rice is a more common topic of conversation. Very much. It's an everyday topic of conversation, in fact. Why can't we talk about it like that? Why can't we talk about if a sister's talking about, oh, she just got her letter for screening. Why can't we talk about it like that? Oh, Mm. you better go. You better go. Why don't we have those channels of conversations whereby we can let people know that it's okay to have cancer and still come out on the other side? You can, you can, you can have cancer, you can have the treatment and you can still go on to live a healthy life. Those are the conversations that we were doing a lot of projects around. So I'm just looking and praying to a lot of good things for yeah. us this year because the impact that we can have, it's really, really, really life-changing. It's wonderful to hear you speaking about these things. I think that you have such an important perspective to share on on this topic. You know, you're the first non-medic non-dentist to come on this podcast and I'm so so glad that you have come because I think there's so many different people different players in the healthcare system who have important ideas to share so I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to share them with us today something I was just thinking was that medical students would really benefit from going to your your kind of question sessions with patients mm. yeah or doctors who are working in that in that area if they if they could if they could sit in and they could actually see the type of questions that people have yeah and see what they're like in an environment that isn't so scary and clinical they'd learn so so much about their patients thank you so much again for for sharing your thoughts today and you're doing such an amazing thing in this world oh thank you so are you too Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. This was such an eye-opening conversation on the realities of cancer care for the Bema community. All the links to support, follow and hear more about Cancer Education UK are in the show notes. And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this conversation, please share it with them. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback, so why not give a rating and review? You can follow me on Instagram at rollercare.so and on LinkedIn. And I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.